You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome and thank you for joining us for another Lozano Smith podcast. I'm your host, Sloan Simmons, out of Lozano Smith Sacramento office, litigation co-practice group chair and student attorney and other things. But more importantly, I'm lucky to be joined today by two of our, our most fantastic charter experts and attorneys in Lozano Smith. This is the third time I've had you two to talk about charter work. And I've got a lot of positive things to say about you, Ed, but I'll save them for a future podcast. Ed Sklar, partner out of Walnut Creek, longtime practitioner, um, outstanding charter school attorney, amongst other things. And then Aaron Haymore, fellow partner here in the Sacramento office, um, a frequent flyer, not only with advising clients up and down the state on charter work, but also involved with some interesting charter school litigation over the last several years. So Ed, Aaron, thank you for being here today. Good to be here, Sloan. So it looks like, and I think this builds, there's kind of a, we've been walking through these changes in the laws going back several years. Then we're now to this point in time where we're going to start talking about charter renewals again. They're back. They weren't, they were gone for a little bit. Uh, Ed, can you set the table of, of what that means in terms of post-pandemic uh, adjustments in the law of charters, and now where we are today, looking forward to the charter renewal process. Sure. Slight, thanks, Long. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, bottom line is that charter schools are going to be back asking their authorizers to renew them starting in the 23-24 school year. So that shouldn't be starting now, but it should be starting in the next school year. But everyone should be, you know, all attention paid that this is going to be coming down the pike. It really, how we got here is a perfect storm of, I won't call bad luck, just odd luck. If you recall in 2019, uh, the legislature passed AB 1505, which was some really grand charter school reform uh, or reform of California's Charter Schools Act. And really what it did at that time was AB 1505, for purposes of charter petitions for renewal, it put charter petitions into three tiers, or what I call buckets, three different buckets. Um, there was a, the tier was a high performing tier or a middle performing tier or a low performing tier. So any charter school in California was put into that bucket uh, uh, by the California Department of Education and depending on which bucket or tier you were on, that impacted, you know, your process for renewal um, and and the level of review that the charter petition would receive. And um, the charter schools, de like, determined that uh, how CDE would be placed on... Yeah. Let me back up on that. We determined that for CDE that they would place the charters in those buckets or in those tiers by how they performed on the dashboard. Then we entered, that was in 2019. That was when the law was passed. It was gonna go into effect in 2020. And then we entered 2020 and what happened? We had the pandemic. And that really wiped out standardized testing. Um, it put kids in remote learning uh, environments. And what it did was it basically wiped out the dashboard and the uh, compilation of the 
the dashboard for another couple of years. So in response, the fact that they had passed the law that said that renewals are now going to rely on the dashboard, and then followed by the dashboard went away, in response, in 2021, the legislature extended the charter terms for most charters in the state for two years. So charter, charter schools from 2021 through 2023 were not going to have to come back to their authorizers for renewal. They were just told, based on what the legislature did, you are now, you, your charter petitions have been extended for two years, or your charter terms have been extended for two years. So those charters that were initially set to expire at the end of uh, the 21-22 school year, they are now up for renewal for the 23-24 school year. So bottom line is a large set of charter, charter schools are going to be coming to their authorizers in the 23-24 school year for renewal. And any sense of the the numbers when it when it comes to this category of charters that we anticipate to come forward for renewals? That may be an impossible question. I haven't looked at that. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know that anyone knows. But I, you know, let's let's say a safe guesstimate would be about a fifth of the charter schools around the state. Okay. Okay. Now, Aaron, this will not be the first time that that we have a, a statutory structure in California which relies upon or triggers rights or entitlements or processes based upon some metric or platform the state has, has established. And I'm thinking back to the some of the statutes that allowed for parents to petition and establish their own charter school or, or have a charter school established based on certain metrics that was tied to certain testing that went away and so we're kind of in a similar scenario now. How are these renewals going to work without a dashboard? So you're right. It's not the first time we've been in this boat. Um, but the first time we've been in this exact boat where they create a new law and then the metrics almost dis immediately disappear. So we almost don't even have a baseline for how to handle that. But, I mean, the bottom line is that the timing is awkward because the dashboard um, obviously looks back into you know, prior school years and creating that data. And we won't have results until the end of the 2023 calendar year. But most charter school authorizers are going to be looking at renewal petitions and starting that process in you know, fall um, or earlier of 2023. So you know the, the buckets that Ed was talking about, the high-performing, middle-performing, low-performing, we're not even going to have those until early 2024. So the CDE, um, back in October of last year, they came out with their proposed solution to this, which is essentially to, for the very short time being, to eliminate high performing, eliminate low performing, and everyone gets treated as middle performing since we don't have the data we need. And you know, as a as a solution, it's definitely a potential middle ground. But we think the problem that we're going to see is that charters who, that, who otherwise would have gotten approved maybe as high-performing, seven years, you don't really have to go through a rigorous um, renewal process, are now going to be slotted into this middle bucket, so to speak, where they have to do more than they otherwise would have, and maybe their charter term is lower or um, fewer years. And then on the flip side, some low-performing charter schools may be getting an unfair break. Um, they maybe would not have been renewed at all. 
and now they'll be around for another five more years. So there's definitely some um, concerns regarding treatment of different charter schools. So as a non-charter attorney, except for those instances, I'm lucky to jump on the back of the the bus while you're driving charter litigation and ride along for for the the case. Is there any other factor or factors independent from being characterized as a middle performing charter that a district might account for and say, hey, sorry, we get that you're being characterized as a middle performing charter charter because of the CD's directive, but because of these other factors, we're not going to renew. I think that would be pretty risky to choose not to renew. That will there are some governance and fiscal overriding factors, you know, that we can that we'll talk about that are kind of a, a catch-all provision for denying charters. But really, charter schools are going to be in their authorizers. I think there's going to be a huge focus on data um, and the data supporting those renewals to get them to where they need to be. So, Ed, what is the data that that is going to be turned to for these renewals? Yeah, so uh, what for middle performing charters, what the law contemplates is that the charter authorizers will are going to look to dashboard performance. Dashboard will be back, like Aaron said, not going to be back until the at the earliest, the start of 2024. And and that's problematic. But they also are what the law states, states is that authorizers are also going to look at um, academic performance of the charters, and they, are, they, they shall look at uh, verified data, which um, that they must consider verified data. So verified data is basically a universe of data sources and assessments from a list of approved sources by the, by the State Board of Education that was adopted, I think, like November of 2020. Verified data are comprised of academic progress indicators, basically assessments, and they're measures of post-secondary outcomes as well. But I think that that is going, the use of the verified data for middle performing charters is going to present some issues between, potential issues between authorizers and charters. And, and I just want to say that these issues that are presented would have been presented had we not had a pandemic, had we not had these, this two-year extension, and had there been no break in renewals, you know, it's basically it's questions like, is the authorizer and the charter schools, are they going to agree on the verified data that should be used in the review? Um, I suspect that we will see from the charter community that, you know, that, that they will state that whatever verified data is presented to the um, to the charter authorizer must be reviewed and considered by the charter authorizer and the charter authorizer may want a, a different set of measurements within the universe of verified data for the charter to submit. Um, will the data show consistent narrative as to you know what the charter school is saying and what the authorizer reviewing the data is saying? Uh, you know, so two different narratives between the authorizer and the charter and the charter school that's been around since the beginning of time. Um, and then, you know, how you are supposed to interpret the verified data and whether it actually does serve the, the um, performance, uh, a good performance of the charter school. We don't have any regulations that interpret the AB 1505 uh, statute. So, for example, 
one of the things the charter authorizer is supposed to do is take a look at the verified data of a middle performing charter and determine whether the school achieved measurable increases in academic achievement as defined by at least one year's progress for each year in school. So what does that mean when you are one year's progress for each year in school? We don't have any regulations to interpret what that means. And I've sat around rooms with some very smart people who've tried to figure out what that really means. And so we'll see how that plays out. The lack of a sound interpretation through any type of regulation, how this plays out come the fall, how this plays out, you know, as we see these new sets of renewals coming in. And can you give an example of what might be the most concrete and indisputable verified data versus something that a charter might allege or claim to be verified data, but we would at least have to think more critically whether or not that that checks the box. You know, I'm looking at the list right now of the various uh, verified assessments, uh, M-Class, SAT Suite, uh, LPAC, LPAC ETS, uh, FastBridge. So, I am but a simple lawyer. I don't, you know, I, I will defer to my, my, my clients in the, in the actual charter authorizing world. But in regard to, uh, I mean, I have to presume that if it's on the CD list that these are quality assessments, but, um, but there may be issues in regard to how they were taken, when they were taken, who took them, um, and how they're presented that the authorizer takes issue with. So we'll see. Does the, does the verified data have to be from the list that the CD has put out, or can a charter seek to utilize verified data that is not on the approved list? My take is that an authorizer would be able to look at whatever data is presented to them, um, and that if they believe, and the char if the charter submits it in their petition, remember, the driver of what is being submitted is the charter, is the charter school itself, when submitting their petition. And if the um, authorizer says, yeah, we believe this is valid data that we want to consider when we're looking at the academic uh, performance of the, of the charter school, then even if it's outside of the verified data, uh, I think that the authorizer would be entitled to use it. Uh, one more for you, Ed. Charter presents their petition for renewal. That might not be the right word. Is it petition for renewal? and provides X verified data from the list that CD says is fine, but doesn't include others, and Charter Authorizer actually points to other perhaps considered more reliable or better verified data on the approved list that they think points in a different direction from that which is provided by the Charter and the renewal petition. How does that play out? Well, I think that's where we're going to have a dispute, right? I, I suspect that the charter community is going to say that, you know, the district need, must consider all verified data that is submitted. And I think that the, you're going to have authorizers who are going to say, well, here are some measurements we through the verified data that we would like you to, to be submitting or we will, like to, we will look to and consider in regard to you know, whether you're renewed or not, and in this, in this renewal process. And so, uh, once again, that gets to the concerns about the different narratives that I talked about before. Um, and so, this has been around forever. Like, what is, the, what is the district looking at and considering? 
that may present a less positive narrative for a case for renewal than the charter school believes um, the authorizer should be looking at or should be considering. So I, my, my thought is like a lot of this is, could be resolved through good communication with those charter schools that are coming up for renewal and the authorizers uh, you know, initiating and being proactive into communication now as to, so there are no surprises as to what is submitted in the petition for renewal. Um, but reality, sometimes that's difficult to do. If you're a large charter authorizer, you know, coming up with the uniform, like what all author, all charter schools are supposed to be submitting and having that conversation, that's a difficult conversation just from a practical sense to have. So we'll see how it plays out. I think more communication is always better than less communication. Um, so we'll see. Aaron, I, I assume the next thing that kind of comes into play here is a range of governance and fiscal issues. Can you kind of walk through what districts are going to have to account for in that respect? Sure. So really, it's setting aside the verified data that we're talking about, the high, middle, and low performing categories, going all the way back to AB 1505, there's this concept of um, we need a we need another out, another mechanism if there's serious concerns about charter schools that falls outside of the, the data rubric, so to speak. So there's really two catch-all provisions um, that are going to come into play here, and the authorizer, authorizers need to keep in mind, no matter what category a charter school falls into based on their data, um, if, one, there are serious fiscal or governance concerns such that the authorizer is concerned they may not be able to implement their program um, in a you know in an important way, um, or two, if the charter school is not serving all students who wish to be served by that school, i.e., selective enrollment practices, um, things along that line, then that school can be non-renewed even if they are the highest in a performance category, and. You know, and this is really a planning conversation at this point. So, if charter authorizer thinks that, you know, they have these concerns, and typically they would know, um, you know, at some point not too far into the renewal cycle, there's governance concerns, fiscal concerns, um, selective enrollment practices, then authorizers need to plan in advance. And there has to be a notice that goes out to the charter school. They have to be essentially secure and correct. Um, they have to have 30 days notice, an opportunity to cure these issues, and that has to happen before they're non-renewed on these grounds. So this is the time for authorizers to really be having discussions with charter schools if these are concerns that they think are going to bubble to the surface and potentially impact renewal. How does the, the issue of selective enrollment, is that going to come up by way of families complaining that they were denied enrollment, is that the easiest way for that to come to light or are there other ways in which that might come be surfaced as an issue? I think the way we're typically seeing, at least in the last few years, is exactly that. It's, you know, families complaining or sometimes maybe other staff at a charter school complaining if they see these practices. This is part of a new provision that was built into the Charter Schools Act a few years ago that says a charter school um, shall not encourage disenrollment or discourage enrollment, and so and there's consequences for doing that. Is there any uh, cutoff with that 30-day notice? 
Um, like if I'm a charter and I've already got in my renewal petition, if you're the authorizer, have you run out of time for the 30-day notice and cure period, or that, can that come while a renewal petition is pending? Well, based on the timing of renewal, so once a, um, a charter school submits a renewal petition, there's technically a total of 90 days to take action okay. on that petition. Yep. I think in theory, sure, you could raise it then, and, and some authorizers likely will, but also maybe not a legal requirement, but certainly a best practice to have those open lines of communication so it's not a surprise to a charter school when they submit their petition. Progressive discipline. That's right. <laughs> One of the things I just wanted to, to, to add on to that is that um, is two things. One is it seems like the legislature's made the renewal process a lot like what the revocation process used to be, right? So if you have a problem with a charter school's, uh, as Aaron said, governance issues or fiscal issues, or they're not allowing kids to enroll who want to enroll in the school, I think is, as you call the Sloan selective enrollment, then to, you have to put them on notice and then you have to give them an opportunity, as Erin called it, cure and correct, which is a, looks a lot like the revocation process. So, so the revocation process has now merged with the renewal process if you are looking at these types of, at these types of issues. The other thing I just wanted to add was um, 100% agree that, you know, if how do we know about the selective enrollment and whether they are uh, a charter school is not is I don't know what what would the term would be it was cherry picking kids right that's the term we hear or counseling out kids who they don't want to be at the school who may not perform as well academically the uh, one of the things that this the legislature set up under AB fifteen oh five was also having the state provide enrollment data basically so that the authorizer can request from CDE what the enrollment trends were for the school, uh, specifically among uh, subgroups of students, and look at those enrollment trends and see if there's a concern. So it is contemplated you're also going to be using state data. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Aaron, I want to go back to the notice piece. Is there, what are the elements that need to be accounted for to be an adequate notice of these, these deficiencies? And or is there a measure that has to be accounted for a standard when, when providing that notice? As to the notice itself, there's not a standard regarding the contents per se, just 30 days notice um, and an opportunity to cure. But the charter authorizer, after giving that notice, needs to be able to make findings if they're going to deny. Either that corrective action was unsuccessful after giving them an opportunity to correct, um, or that the violation is so so severe or so pervasive that it's essentially uncorrectable. So that's what will be looked at in terms of whether the actual revocation on that ground was sufficient. Stuff's always interesting. What would uh, what would you two say, kind of as uh, next steps or big picture for school district charter authorizers to be accounting for as we head toward the return of renewals? My big takeaway and best practice that I would share is planning, I think, and, and then some of our big authorizers are doing that already. Look ahead, not just a year, but two years, three years, who's up for renewal and what standards will apply to them, because they're going to change then again after we get these buckets um, 
back in 2024. So uh, authorizers should be planning and having dialogue with the charter schools they work with. I agree 100% with that. And I think the other thing that's just going to be interesting to watch is how authorizers approach the reality of the fact that we're coming out of a pandemic and that, you know, charter school performance, whether, you know, poor performance in 2020 is interpreted as actually good performance in 2023 and sort of how the, the, the curve works here. And, um, you know, at the t- at the as we were in the in the throes of the pandemic, as schools were up for renewal, some districts were you know realizing the last thing they wanted to do at that point was close a school and not renew its charter petition. I don't I don't know, but we'll see if that continues to hold and that approach continues to hold as we are coming out of the pandemic and we're in the 23-24 school year. Ed, Aaron, you guys are always great. Thank you for joining me today. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to another Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on some of the topics we discussed today. Also, make sure to sign up and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Ed, Aaron, thanks. Thanks, Sloan. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the host of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.